0: Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist. We're back on the usual fortnightly schedule, though if you've listened to the end of the last episode, you'll know that from next year, that'll all be changing for the better. Today though, I'm going to bring you another piece from me. Earlier this year, I had the privilege of speaking for the Friends of the Lines of Torres Vedras, an organisation that I'm very fond of, which works to preserve and restore the fortifications just north of Lisbon, which played a crucial role in defeating the third French invasion of Portugal in 1810-11. I'd urge you to take a look at their work. They have a lecture series that they run with high-profile guests, which in the near future will include Gareth Glover, who you will remember from past episodes, Mythbusting Waterloo. You can find them on Twitter, at OfVadras. For this episode, then, I'm going to bring you a doctored version of my talk for them, entitled, Desertion, Despondency and Dastardly Behaviour, Discipline, Command and Control During the Peninsular War Retreats. Despite what you might expect for an organisation that focuses on the fortifications that were pivotal to the campaign, From 1810 to 11, I'm going to get to that campaign the long way round, because I want to begin by discussing a peculiar pattern of the Peninsular War. At my very first conference, the 5th Wellington Congress, in 2013, Charles Esdale made a point that has stuck with me it is too easy to see the Peninsular War as a constant march to victory. He was referencing the tendency to perceive the outcome of the conflict as an inevitability. Given our perspective, with the benefit of hindsight, and to go in search for the keys to that excess, over-emphasizing their prominence, despite the fact that there were many points when the British position in the region was at best precarious, you'll be relieved to hear that I'm not about to spend the next hour recounting the course of the war. We can save that for another episode if you really want, but it's worth considering that precarity. 1808 saw success at Relitha and Vimiero. A few months later the army was running for the port of Coruña, buying enough time for embarkation at the Battle of Coruña on the 16th of January. In 1809, Portugal was liberated following success at Oporto in May, and the Anglo-Spanish force was successful at Talavera in July, and then the British had to run for the Portuguese border. In 1810, the French invaded Portugal. The Anglo-Portuguese force defeated the French at Passaco in September, but nonetheless had to withdraw to the lines of Torres Vedras. 1811 was a year of bloody stalemate, the British government was not particularly stable, and there were questions about whether the Whig opposition would form a government and recall the army. 1812 saw success at Theodore Rodrigo, Badajoff, and Salamanca before the army was forced to run, once again, for the Portuguese border, in the face of overwhelming numerical superiority following the failure of the Burgos campaign. So we have a pattern here. The British army, on a number of occasions with allies, always being triumphant on the battlefield, but not reaping the rewards in terms of territorial acquisition. Why dwell on this at the start of a discussion on discipline in the British army in 1810, though? Well, to understand crime in the army, you have to understand the criminal, which in other words means getting your head around soldier psychology, and it is inconceivable that this pattern of succeed-retreat, succeed-retreat, did not have a profound effect on the psychology of the troops with a corresponding impact on their behaviour. We have obvious examples of this. It's commonly remarked on by historians that the Corunna retreat in 1809 and the last phase of the 1812 retreat were marked with desertion and plundering. So in the process of this talk, I want to explore the extent to which that pattern of poor behaviour was also visible in late 1810, determining whether the situation in 1810 was distinct from others, or simply mirrored it. But at the same time, I want to put it to you that the issue of plundering in the British army ran far deeper than this question of poor behaviour in the event of setbacks. There can be no question that retreats saw some of the worst conduct exhibited by British troops, with the exception of the sacking of baderhof The evidence of that is incontrovertible. But as I will endeavour to show you, the retreat was more the straw that broke the camel's back than it was the root cause. The tensions, the stresses, and the breakdown of supplies that coincided with these withdrawals simply brought to the fore much bigger problems and contradictions in the command, control, and discipline of the British army in this period. So what do we know about the psychology of soldiers during retreats? Well, for one thing, they were not immune to the psychological impact, but British soldiers' responses were generally turned outwards rather than internalised. Blame was therefore apportioned to the Portuguese and Spanish allies, a demonstration of a much deeper issue of xenophobia that was apparent amongst the British troops, or the commander was blamed for not trusting, in inverted commas, the men to win if they were committed to a battle. On treating their allies as scapegoats, we have a wealth of examples, such as this comment from Porter in 1808, Where are the promised patriots in arms? All we expected to meet have made themselves heir. And this sentiment continues for a good chunk of the war. Coldstream Guards Officer John Mills was echoing that sentiment as late as October 1811. I think Spain is already conquered, and that the next campaign will show it us. They look upon us with a jealous eye, would rather submit to a French king than to be incorporated with England, as Portugal is. This quote from the from a soldier of the 71st regiment captures the sense of wounded distrust particularly well. On the 24th of December, 1808, our headquarters were at Sahagun. Every heart beat with joy. We were all under arms and formed to attack the enemy. Every mouth breathed hope. We will beat them to pieces and have our ease and enjoy ourselves, said my comrades. I even preferred any short struggle, however severe, To the dreadful way of life we were at this time pursuing. With heavy hearts, we received orders to retire to our quarters. And won't we be allowed to fight? Sure, we'd beat them, said an Irish lad near me. By St. Patrick, we'd beat them so easy, the general means to march us to death and fight them after. You can find similar things on a host of other occasions, particularly in the run up to the Battle of Salamanca, actually, when the troops and Wellington had to hold their nerve. For the men, the circumstances of the battle didn't seem to matter. Whether it was bravado, an embryonic nationalistic belief in their own superiority, or just supreme self-confidence, there was an undertone of almost suicidal bravery that particularly emerged when troops had to withdraw without a fight. One of the other obvious demonstrations of soldiers feeling in these moments was, of course, desertion. Desertion was a dangerous game. There was no guarantee of success, and the risks were high. Under the provisions of the Mutiny Act and Articles of War, which governed military law, deserters could be, and were, shot. Even if they escaped execution, transportation or flogging was not unusual, and the individual would likely be ostracised by their comrades. As Ed Koss, Ilya Berkovich and Michael Hughes have all shown, soldiers depended on their comrades to help them through the experiences of army life. To turn your back on your comrades through desertion, therefore, was a significant step and was often usually either an indication that the chances of getting caught were somehow reduced, or that the individual believed their chances of survival were better away from the army than with it. And that philosophy is borne out by the desertion data from the monthly returns. Obvious spikes appear in January 1809, 0.2% of troops deserting, and November 1812, just under 0.3%, coinciding with the Coruña and Theodal Rodrigo retreats. It is well known that supplies were virtually non-existent for troops during the Carina retreat in the winter of 1808-9, and the withdrawal from Salamanca to Theodore Rodrigo in late 1812. King's German Legion Commissary August Schalman commented, The misery of the whole thing was appalling. Huge mountains, intense cold, no houses, no shelter or cover of any kind, no inhabitants, no bread. The road was strewn with dead horses dead mules, donkeys and dogs, starved and frozen soldiers, women and children. Discipline became ever more and more relaxed, and horrible deeds of every description shed a black stain upon the fair fame of the British soldier. Sergeant Anthony Hamilton, meanwhile, offers this. The soldiers whose strength still enabled them to proceed, maddened by the continued suffering of cold and hunger, were no longer under any subordination. In such circumstances, pillage could not be prevented. The ravages of the most ferocious enemy could not have exceeded the atrocity of those perpetuated by a British army on their allies. I want to dwell on a particular part of that comment by Hamilton, though. In such circumstances, pillage could not be prevented. Because, on the face of things, none of this is surprising. Soldiers were hungry, they needed to eat or they would starve to death. It was only natural that they would tear houses apart looking for food so that they had the strength to march the next day. As Ed Coss has shown in All for the King's Shilling, even the food that the troops were meant to get wasn't enough nutritionally to cover their needs. When the supplies dried up, the situation was just impossible. Take this comment from Wellington. When troops are starving, which those under my command have been, it is not astonishing that they should go to the villages and even to the mountains and look for food where they think they can get it. On this occasion, Wellington was writing to General Cuesta in August 1809 about some complaints that had been made about the British going out in search of food. But let's pause and consider that for a moment. This fatalistic, resigned attitude is not the Wellington we are used to. You'd be forgiven for thinking that we were dealing with a completely different man to the one who, a month later, and with evident fury, lambasted his men for plundering beehives, parading an entire division from sunrise to sunset until the culprits were found. On the 7th of September 1809, he was writing, Notwithstanding the repeated orders given upon the subject, the soldiers of the 4th Division of Infantry plundered beehives in the neighbourhood of Baderhof on the day before the division marched from that place, It is impossible these outrages can be committed daily, and that the last outrage in particular could have been permitted without the officers obtaining some knowledge of it. The commander of the forces has done, and will continue to do, everything in his power to put an end to these disgraceful practices, but it is obvious that all efforts must be fruitless unless the officers of the army, general and individually, exert themselves for the same object. So there are some important alarm bells that start ringing here about plundering in the British army. If there were circumstances when a commander as vociferous as Wellington was prepared to take a laissez-faire approach to the problem, just how rigorously was the army disciplined? This issue of plundering runs far deeper than just retreats. If you've ever picked up Edward Costello's memoir, which I would wholeheartedly recommend, or in fact almost any memoir by a member of the rank and file, you'll know... you end up almost tripping over accounts of plundering. Here's a selection from Costello, some of which he participated in, but you will find similar remarks in almost all memoirs. I must confess that I participated in plunder and received about $26 for my own share, on another occasion. I came up to some of our party who were doing their best to empty a pigskin of wine they had stolen. Being dreadfully fatigued and thirsty, I had not sufficient restraint upon myself to refuse the invitation to held out to me to drink. I happened to be on guard one day when General Crawford came riding in from the front, with an orderly dragoon, as was his usual custom, when two of our men, one of them a corporal, came running out of a house with some bread, which they had stolen from the Spaniards. So this was a widespread issue. The fact that soldiers were confessing to it in such a candid way demonstrates the extent to which that this was a simple fact of life. And it's worth considering that Costello later found himself serving as an assistant provost marshal, a post that was only given to the steadiest of men. If Costello was steady, how bad were the others? The question then is how did the officers deal with it? Well, this is where it gets complicated, because some plunder was considered legitimate. Plundering the enemy was deemed acceptable. When Rifleman Harris was caught by his major on his way back to his unit, having plundered a dead Frenchman in 1808, his major simply remarked, I'm sorry the purse is not better filled. Fall in. Plunder for reward was also a fundamental aspect of army life. Soldiers expected it. It's one of the things that motivated them. When William Brown had his pack searched shortly after Victoria and his plunder confiscated, he was so furious that he vowed, I had hitherto abhorred the numerous acts of cruel rapacity I had seen perpetrated by our men, but now, grieved and irritated to the highest degree, in that hour I swore never to forego an opportunity of aggrandisement, whether at the expense of friend or foe. So plunder as reward was an accepted phenomenon. In fact, on the morning of Waterloo, according to Lieutenant Richard Cox's. heirs, General Adams specifically permitted his men to plunder three farmhouses as a reward for fighting hard all night, so this culture of plunder for reward existed at the highest levels. Yet we also know that officers turned a blind eye to plundering. In March 1813, William Wheeler wrote home with a tale of how his commanding officer, Major Roberts, who he claimed elsewhere was very fond of using the cats, that's of 9 tails whips, dealt with a soldier who sought to disguise himself when robbing an elderly lady of some eggs by shutting one eye. After the woman complained the unit was paraded and the civilian was asked to walk up and down the ranks alongside the major looking for the thief. Upon reaching the culprit she, and I'm quoting here, made a stop in front of Barnett, the thief, looked steadfastly in his face and exclaimed, Jesus, Maria and Joseph. I never saw two more alike, only the man who stole my eggs was Falta Una Oyi, had one eye. The consequence was she was puzzled, and the major was so tickled with the fun, he passed on, and the old woman went away grumbling something about Falta Una Oyi. After she was gone, the major gave Barnet some advice, recommending him not to try the trick again, for if he had ordered him to shut one eye, the old woman would have identified him. That whole story puts a completely new slant on the idea of turning a blind eye. So we've established the British troops weren't particularly well behaved at the best of times, and that plenty of officers turned a blind eye to plundering. As a result, we have to say that their behaviour was quite simply made worse by withdrawal, especially without a fight. It wasn't unique, but in the event of a withdrawal, certainly in the absence of supplies all semblance of order was abandoned when it came to plundering. So how does all of this come together in 1810 and 1811? Well, let's start with the psychological outlook. The army seems to actually have been in a pretty positive frame of mind, writing in his diary, army surgeon Charles Boutflower, who had his finger on the pulse of the army during the period and often made detailed comments about the different moods in the camp, wrote on the 19th of September... Certain it is that we never anticipated with so much confidence as at present the entire defeat of the enemy, should they dare to attack us. In October, William War remarked, Nothing can exceed the confidence and spirit of our army, which are very well provided. Wellington seemingly wasn't convinced that this would be the case immediately after Bissarco, though, writing in a general order, dated 30th of September, in which he thanked the troops that, Although the designs of the enemy's movements induce the commander of the forces to withdraw the army from their position, which it was not in the power of the enemy to force, he hopes to be enabled by the discipline and determined bravery of the officers and troops to frustrate his designs and to save this country for which the British army have been so well treated from the degrading yoke which is proposed for it. Now that's telling on two levels. For one thing, this is Wellington doing the 19th century equivalent of saying, stick with it guys, don't give up now. But the pointed comment that the British army had been so well treated by the Portuguese is a blatant warning to do right by the locals. Wellington no doubt had one eye on the fact that he knew the army was treading familiar ground by retreating after a victory, as it had done at Talavera, but any despondency would have been abated by the fact that the troops were passing through the lines of Torres Vedras a little over a week later, once they'd withdrawn from Versarco, at which point it would have been apparent that they were going to be sticking around for a while. Did the British plunder during the retreat? Without question. Troops were doing so well before the fall of Almeida, with Wellington commenting in general orders on the 4th of June 1810, the commander of the forces is concerned to be obliged to bring before the troops another example of the consequence of their irregularities, breaches of discipline, and crimes. In order to get liquor, these soldiers form a conspiracy to commit a robbery. In the course of the commission of their crime, one of a greater enormity, a murder, is committed, which is soon discovered. If such frequent instances had not occurred of the same circumstances produced by the same course of events, it would not be credible. That British soldiers should so far forget their duty as to conspire to commit a robbery on a people they are sent to protect and by whom they have invariably been well treated. That there were no other comments on the issue in General Orders suggests that there were no major incidents requiring his intervention, but with civilians abandoning their homes as part of the evacuation behind the lines, it would be naive to imagine that troops did not take advantage of this to go in search of plunder. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even the officers were admitting to being light-fingered. In November 1810, Bakewell admitted, We discovered a quantity of salt pork, etc., secreted in a well. And in one church, we came across a collection of fancy surplices in a large chest of drawers. They shared the same fate as the rest of any property found and came as useful as nightgowns and cloaks. Whatever the scale of the plundering, very few were brought to trial for it from September to early February. In fact, only four were brought to trial. I'm doubtful that this is because men weren't plundering on the scale that we might su- suspect. It's representative of a pattern that we see across the peninsula wall where prosecuting these crimes is difficult for a host of reasons, some of which I've already touched on. I want to take a moment, whilst we're talking about the suffering of the Portuguese at the hands of the British, to consider something of a tangent. There has been some discussion around the number of civilians who died as a result of the French invasion, particularly those who suffered from starvation behind the lines during the winter of 1810-11. The suggestion has been made that the responsibility for those deaths lies with the British for forcibly evacuating the population and then failing to make provisions for them, and that the figure Of 50,000 dead, is therefore one that should be attributed to the British. It's, It's a number that's bandied around a lot. It's a serious accusation, and it should be considered carefully, not dismissed out of hand. But there are issues with the argument. Firstly, the numbers. The numbers are difficult, because you need to consult census data, the country was in the midst of an invasion, and it is difficult to determine how many died from starvation and disease caused by the evacuation or from other reasons. Fernando Dorez Costa has suggested that 2,969 individuals in the Diocese of Combra were killed by the French, and a further 35,000 died of what he describes as contagion. That's from an estimated population in 1801 of 285,000 people. Now that's just the Diocese of Combra that doesn't cover the area behind the lines, but clearly many of those deaths Will have been in part inflicted by the lack of food from the Allied scorched earth policy, but we're still away off, quite a long way off, the forty to fifty thousand benchmark as an overall figure. It could be larger; it could actually be smaller. People often cite John Grayan's The Lines of Torres Vedras, which states around forty thousand people are reported to have died in the Lisbon area during that terrible winter, but Graham is actually citing David Gates's the Spanish Ulcer which claims Wellington's scorched earth stratagem whilst inflicting dreadful losses on the French also claimed the lives of perhaps fifty thousand Portuguese peasants in 1810 There's a problem though Gates doesn't cite a source so part of the issue here is that we have a historical version of Chinese whispers that's not to say that Gates didn't have the figures to back it up, but we simply don't know. What we have is a fragmented picture. The figure may be lower or higher than 50,000, and the incident serves as a reminder of the dangers of taking figures at face value. Meanwhile, Kevin Kiley has suggested that the Portuguese government could not feed them, the civilians, and Wellington was mainly concerned about feeding his army. There was no way the Royal Navy could supply the Portuguese civilians. But, with the utmost of respect that doesn't entirely reflect the reality of what happened. The Portuguese government certainly made provisions for the evacuated civilians. Wellington had urged them to do so as early as June of that year. The Royal Navy forcibly diverted ships containing grain to Lisbon to relieve the food shortages. The population was, in time, given compensation. The British government voted to allocate a fund of £100,000 in 1811, which was distributed by July of 1812. That's about 4.6 million in today's money. There were multiple f- public funds arranged in Britain, including one for 70,000 pounds. That's a further 3.2 million pounds. And I'm grateful to Gareth Glover for his help in sourcing the following extract from John Colville's portrait of a general. It's dated Alicuenta, 15th of February 1811. A good many of the British brigades have established kitchens and other modes for feeding such of the Portuguese poor as for want of other refuge have preferred remaining among the hedges or other cover in our cantonments. The fund of my own brigade proceeds from the heads, feet and insides of our fresh beef, with the exception of tongues and heart. Purchases of Indian wheat, corn and rice by subscription among the officers already gives ample relief to 120 people of all ages and would do more had we better convenience for cooking. Quite clearly then, the British did as much as could feasibly be done to support the Portuguese through the winter, and this behaviour was in stark contrast to how the French acted in their occupied area. John Graham has shown that the destruction of Portuguese towns and historic buildings was actually sanctioned and systematically organised by Messina's headquarters, with orderly books outlining the number of soldiers allotted to the task. Equally, many here will know of the appalled accounts left by officers of the devastation and murder committed by the French. Robert Ballard Long offered just one example. Mothers were hung up with their children by their sides, and fires lighted below them. Men and children half-murdered, thrown upon the burning embers of the houses they had set on fire. Now none of that excuses the conduct of the British soldiers. Nobody can pretend that two wrongs make a right, and you will never hear me saying that the criminal behaviour of British troops should be excused or condoned. But it does demonstrate that what the British offered by evacuating the populace was undoubtedly the lesser of two evils. Setting the treatment of civilians to one side now, I want to look at what the army prosecuted and punished, because this is revealing about wide attitudes towards discipline in the army at this time. Desertion is an obvious starting point, particularly considering what I said earlier about desertion and the psychology of retreat. Certainly men deserted, and in higher proportions than at other times in the campaign, inevitably leading to trials and punishments. In one case, we actually have an account of the end of the process. Private James Mulligan of the 27th Regiment was tried on the 2nd of November 1810 for quitting his post as a sentry and deserting, a crime that he committed on the 24th of October, so he didn't get very far. He was found guilty and sentenced to be shot. Enzyme Bakewell had just arrived in the peninsula to join the Innes and witnessed the execution, and a warning this is a bit graphic. We were ordered to parade upon an adjacent hill to witness the execution. The culprit, under escort, dressed in white from head to foot, now approached us, on ground set as a square, the division forming three sides of it. After the solemn procession had marched in slow time along the whole line, Mulligan was left standing in the centre, on a pile of earth already dug for his grave. When a priest approached to ask whether he had anything to say that might mitigate his punishment, he answered, in the negative. The guard of a dozen or so rank and file then marched twenty paces in front of him and, at the drop of a white handkerchief, discharged a volley. As their muskets had been charged with bolt, his body was mangled in a most shocking manner, one part falling into the grave. Before returning to quarters, the division was then deliberately marched past the corpse to let each soldier see the awful spectacle, which should have been a sufficient deterrent to any other prospective deserters. Looking at the data from the General Court Martials, you might think that Bakewell was wrong about the deterrent. The General Orders for Wellington's Army, held in the University of Southampton's Special Collections Department, are actually really useful here because they relate the results of the General Courts Martial, the most senior military court, for the Army, so it leaves no room for confusion about when and where an individual was tried, as is sometimes the case with trial registers. let's take a look at the details of the trials for the period 1st of June 1810 to the 1st of June 1811. Of these 77 individuals tried at General Court Martial in that period, facing a total of 106 charges, 42 of those charges were for desertion and another 18 for absence from their unit, a charge which was often, though by no means always, used when desertion was unlikely to be proven or when commanders didn't want to make too harsh an example of the individual. In other words, 56% of those charges were for quitting the unit. So did Wellington's army have a desertion problem then? Oddly, no. When you calculate desertions as a percentage of troops deployed in the region, a few episodes stand out in relative terms. Coruña is one of them, as is October 1812, but so too are the post talavera withdrawal, in 1809, and the Torres Vedras withdrawal in 1810. But if 1810 stands out, why did I just say that Wellington's army didn't have a desertion problem? Well, the percentages are key here. At its worst, in the period covered by the the data that that I've amassed, desertions amounted to 0.28 of a percent of the troops deployed in the region. The rate in November 1810 was 0.15 of a percent, but that was the worst rate since the Corinna retreat, so the discontent was real. Why so much emphasis on desertion by the military courts during this period then? Well, the answer is simple. This isn't that unusual. The hugely disproportionate response is the MO for the British military courts. Over the course of my PhD research, I've put together details of almost 9,500 cases tried by the British Army between 1808 and 1818. In the two most senior tiers of military court, the General Courts Martial and the General Regimental Courts Martial, which was created in 1812, desertion trials made up 49% of court business. In other words, desertion was far and away the most tried crime in the British Army. The next most common category of charge, property offences. Doesn't even come close. It's 14% for that type of crime. That said, the 56% of trials for desertion or absence in the peninsula was well above the average for general courts martial in 1810 and 11. When you consider the entire army, those types of crime made up one third of court business. Again, why? Why this disparity? Well, it's a reflection of how the military justice system operated. It was bespoke to the army's needs at any given point in time, and the in, and individual to the officers bringing cases forward. The officer apprehending a soldier upon committing a crime was the one who helped to frame the charge by outlining the offence. Wellington couldn't afford to be losing men to desertion, so when deserters were caught, he was keen for them to be tried, and that was reflected in the treatment of the deserters tried. None of the deserters found guilty during this part of the campaign were spared their punishments, and that set a culture that desertion was not to be tolerated and would be punished harshly. This therefore meant that officers had a choice: they could see the man tried and potentially sentenced to death, or they could suffer the punishment by claiming that the individual was absent and so would face a lesser sentence if found guilty. There is ample evidence. Of officers taking that course of action, which we don't have time for within the context of this episode. But essentially, the takeaway from this is that desertion was the no nonsense crime. And I'd argue that that's a reflection of the environment. On garrison duty, the consequences of passing off a few days of absence as being AWOL were obviously far less serious than in an active theatre of operations. Let's return to some of the other stats that arise from the 1810 to 11 data though. Theft and plunder trial data is comparatively much closer to the average of the period as a whole. So 19% of trials in 1810 to 11 compared to 14% across the army more generally. Again, I would argue that this difference is a reflection of regional needs. We all know that Wellington could not afford for his soldiers' plundering to go unpunished when they were caught. A failure to treat the matter seriously would alienate the locals, and so this higher prosecution rate reflected that need, and Wellington's commitment to following through on the threat to prosecute and punish harshly, which he had made repeatedly in general orders. He had to put his money where his mouth was. In terms of other crimes, well, murder... The rates are entirely consistent. 4.7% of cases in Wellington's army for 1810 to 11, compared to an average of 4.4%. One of those five who were charged involved a drummer killing a fellow drummer, the others were murders of civilians. In early June, two privates were attempting to rob the inhabitant of a house and, inverted ill treated them. I suspect they essentially beat the civilian so badly that they then died, because ill-treated was a convenient catch-all term. A bit like absence, it could mean many things. The other murder trial again involved two privates, and was a case of attempted murder as they robbed a Portuguese civilian in August of 1810. In all the cases of murder, attempted or otherwise, all were found guilty, all hanged, and none received a pardon. And this, again, is part of a pattern that we see across the army, where offences committed overseas were much less likely to be pardoned or commuted than those trials that took place in the UK or confirmed by the King or Prince Regent. British military law was bespoke to the needs on the ground. That flexibility was its strength, allowing it to be applied to the specific circumstances the force found itself in. But that doesn't mean that the consistent that the system was capricious or arbitrary as Roger Norman Buckley has argued the fact that a much more lenient approach was the norm in the UK speaks volumes if military law was being applied more strictly in a war zone that in itself demonstrates that this strict application was the exception rather than the norm military law was discretionary in nature flexible enough to be applied to the needs of the army at any given point in time but it was also a system that was manipulated by those who engaged with it the men knew that the boundaries on plunder were blurred and made the most of it when they could accepting the consequences if they were caught but in turn trusting that their officers would themselves employ discretion officers faced a tough choice discipline the men too harshly and the unit morale would be damaged, be too lax, and the men would run amok, committing crimes of such enormity that they could not be managed any other way than harshly, and they themselves could be charged with a failure to do their duty. So the case study of 1810-11, more than anything else, exposes the fragile nature of command, psychology, and criminality in the British army during the Napoleonic era. From questions about whether the men could reconcile strategic necessity with their own supreme self-belief to officers trying to strike a delicate balance between maintaining morale and instilling discipline, it is clear that there were no perfect answers to the question of effective command and control. That the British were able to maintain their presence in the Iberian Peninsula, generally achieve a relatively harmonious relationship with the local population, and consistently defeat the French, is a testament to the ability of the entire disciplinary system to adapt. British military law worked precisely because it enabled the army to fulfil its most basic function, to win. If it hadn't, the course of history might have been very different. That's it for this episode. Remember to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed the podcast, do leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you have friends who might enjoy the show, please do pass the word on. If you'd like to support the Napoleon Assist as I gear up to producing a minimum of three shows a month in the new year, you can leave a one-off tip via Ko-fi or become a regular supporter via Patreon. The links are in the description. Thank you all for what you are doing to support the show in whatever form it takes, and a particular shout out to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor-level patrons Mark Steus and JC Kaiser, my commander patrons, Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham, Stephen Gillen, and Zach Golby, and my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Alexandra Leon, Beatrice de Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Coss, An Anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Indiana Fats, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, and Stephen Colson. Join me in a fortnight when I'll be speaking to Sam Jolly about the women who marched, fought, and died with the armies of many nations during the Napoleonic Wars. Until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.